Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside, the podcast that explores new perspectives beyond the familiar. I am a CPG innovator, and with this show, I'm seeking a fresh take on business topics with some of the most influential and original thinkers. If you find yourself curiously peeking over the fence at what is happening outside your market, industry, or field of knowledge, then this show will help you to explore more of that. Well, hey everyone. Today we are talking about the topic of strategy, but within that, the topic of darkness within strategy and how looking at all sides of the strategic spectrum can help you to really connect to what business problem you're trying to solve or what personal problem you can bring to the forefront to make your work richer. And for that, I have a true strategy expert with me today, Mark Pollard. Hey, Mark. Hey, Joe. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to hear uh, an Aussie voice on the show. It is. It's quite trippy. And I have to recalibrate my ears, especially to the vowels <laughs> that we do, you know, like show, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's those bloody O's. And we might swear for this because anyone that, that yeah. knows Australians knows that it's in our natural vocabulary. But we'll do it with rounded rounded R's like you just did. Rounded. Our. <laughs> yeah. No. I'm already losing my Aussie accent. What's going on? So, Mark, you are very well known, but for those of you who are less familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I don't know if I'm well known. I'm still trying to know myself, and I don't even mean that in a pretentious kind of way. We're (laughs) nearly there with the knowing of self. Might take another couple of decades, but we're close. So, I'm an Australian. I've been in New York for 11 years. I've been in and around the advertising world since I was about 19 for about a decade making websites. In Australia, I set up what was at the time the first full-colour underground hip-hop magazine with a CD, CD CD-ROM, in the Southern Hemisphere. We distributed that around the world, made zero money, burnt out all the time, was making websites, doing a radio show in Sydney uh, on a station called 2SER, five years, Tuesday afternoons, two hours of underground rap, and currently run a company called Mighty Jungle, but also a podcast and training community thing called Sweathead which has about 18,000 people in the Facebook group and I'm constantly thinking about writing about and interviewing people about how they think and and do this work that's kind of called strategy, but originally was called account planning and situated in advertising agencies in the UK and Australia and a few other countries. Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack there. So this is going to be a really great conversation. Hey Joe, so I want Joe, to ask you- Joe, from fellow yeah. podcaster, you're allowed to do a <laughs> podcast without using the word yes. unpack. I, I decided oh, this rule no. a long time ago. <laughs> I decided you're allowed to do a podcast without using podcast language like unpack. Okay. Um, I just want I, to pass I it on. A, <laughs> I have a lot of filler words that you're going to hear. I have Same. a lot of segue words. Like, oh, I love that. <laughs> you kind of hear a lot of that. So I'm going to try to try to be a little bit more genuine, less professional. <laughs> maybe. You, you try your heart um, out, Joe. I'm here for it. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to try. Um, so there's something that I want to talk about with you, which is your underground rap background and your creation of CD-ROMs and where you started out versus where you are today. What's the connection to, for you? And you were talking about like knowing yourself. What's the connection between where you started from and where you are today? Uh, words and needing validation. Uh, those are the two things. I've always been a writer. I used to write journals as a kid, postcards, letters to my auntie, aunt in the US from Australia hundreds of times, wrote for school newsletter. 
And often when I see things being done that I'm interested in, I'm like, could I do that? Could I do better than that in a few years if I work at it? And, and so I've always been around words. I used to write bad raps, poetry, love letters, love letters on behalf of other people. So that's really the connection there. And then I think you have to admit that if you're going to do any of that in public, you're seeking some kind of love, some kind of validation. And so they're definitely the two themes that are, are throughout everything other than also being quite interested in the human mind and, and humanity and what, what that's all about. Because it seems pretty random that we're here on this earth being like this. Like what? <laughs> What's all that mm -hmm. about? Yeah, totally random. Do you love it? I love that. Yeah, what, being on earth? <laughs> <laughs> I, was using your, I was using your filler phrases. <laughs> oh, well, nice, very nice. I'm just going to mess with you. I can tell I got you off balance. I know you do. I'm I'm totally thrown. Is there a part of it that's altruistic? Do you think like you want to give back knowledge or do you feel like it is very much more about you? There is some altruism in it. It's just that if you spend time around psychology and specifically evolutionary psychology, you have to also be honest. And the main things that you learn from evolutionary psychology, and I just pronounced that word in a funny way, sort of Australian, sort of American, <laughs> is that Humans mostly do things to attract resources, to fight for status, and for mating purposes, right? They're the three main things that we tend to do what we do for. All the communities I've been around, whether it's the like an underground music scene or the account planning world or whatever it is, I've, I've always tried to bring people together, even though I'm an introvert, and, and I've tried to create resources that people could benefit from. So that's just always in me. It's how, I guess, as an introvert, I can find a place in the world that needs me and, and responds to, to me, you know. So it's probably a coping mm -hmm. mechanism for an introvert with social needs. You said something in your book, which we're going to talk about in a second, but you, you said in there that there is a status in a word like strategy that obviously it comes with some negatives where people think you're grandstanding and they think that you, you're, you know, too, like potentially too intellectual or better than other people. But there's also very positive associations with strategy and you're using that quite overtly for your company and for your personal brand. So why didn't you, to move away from that sort of, you know, the, the, the status aspect and the ego aspect of strategy, why didn't you, for example, say you're a planner or an organizer or a writer? Yeah, so the title account planner is really what I'm talking about when I talk about strategy and advertising. I didn't get that title until I was about 28, and that was at Leo Burnett. And if you have Australian listeners, the person who gave me that title is a guy called uh, Todd Sampson, who has The Gruen Transfer and a bunch of other TV shows. He's pretty well known there. Account planner just felt weird to me as an Australian. It didn't feel very modern. It felt English, you know, and I have English relatives, dad, stepmom, born there. But there's a certain poshness that Australians sort of push against. Strategy, on the other hand, felt really American, you know, like strategy, strategy, strategy. <laughs> and, and here it inherits more from the, the military context in a more obvious way. I'm not saying that our work inherits from the military context, but strategy is very much about politics and, and the military and sport, like the NFL, et cetera, American football in, in a really big way. Account planner, it's like, what, what do you mean? You know, because that mm -hmm. phrase can be used differently, such as someone who is working in sales, but then also I use the word strategy because it's a vague word. I use it ironically. So sometimes I refer to myself as a strategy CEO. That's not a thing, but it's funny <laughs> to me until somebody mm -hmm. introduces me if I'm doing a talk and they use that title in a serious way and didn't know that it was a joke. <laughs> then I feel bad and I have to say, oh, that's a joke. It's a joke. And so I, I use it seriously, but I also 
you know, I, I do that Australian thing where seriousness and mocking are basically the same note and you just don't know. The strategist is there at the intersection of vision, essentially, or an idea and what the business needs, the, the you know, heartland business problem. Then you're also a little bit like the ideator. I, you know, I imagine that you need to be very visionary. Yeah, well, well he's, even to be a little more plain spoken, I see strategy as a creative act. Creativity is bringing topics that don't usually belong together to create new meaning and to create new value. So even when a CEO stands on a stage or releases a press release saying, we're not in the business of making building blocks for kids, we're in the business of imagination, there's an act of creativity there because they're trying to get us to shift how we see a puzzle or building blocks, or maybe this is Lego, into something bigger. And the only reason to do that is so that we understand there's more meaning and more value, more stuff we can get out and maybe therefore more stuff that we should pay for or more stuff that we should value, right? So for mm -hmm. me, strategy is a creative act once we understand what creativity means, which to me is you know, basically lateral thinking, bringing topics together mm -hmm. in novel ways. So I feel like what I've noticed in my, you know, just over 10 years of working with agencies and I used to do marketing for about 10 years. So working with creative agencies quite a lot is I felt really bad for them. Like every time that they presented an idea, you know, most of the time you could tell that they were truly trying to be creative for the sake of creativity. And then here they are, you know, put into a meeting room with a bunch of guys that just want to make money and their ideas are shot down. So I always felt, I always felt like it was like their children that they're putting on the table that are being slaughtered for the sake of profit in a way, which makes me, makes me very sad, but that's the reality, right? I mean, that's the reality of business where you're hiring creative thinkers and thinkers in general to fit inside of the mold of business. And there's something really powerful that you said in your book, come for the ideas, stay for the mind control. Yeah. I mean, really talking about corporate America there and also in that acknowledging that a lot of quote unquote creative agency or advertising agencies are actually corporate America. They just pretend that they're not. And so that was like a big shift for me moving from Australia where we do have corporations and US business culture is very exported, especially in the past decade, especially in the past mm -hmm. decade. And that you could be in Australia, think you're all maverick and all of a sudden your agency gets merged with the company downstairs because someone in New York or Chicago or Paris says that that's what has to happen. And then you move over to the US and a lot of us come here and we think we've been hired because we're Australian, we're direct, we come up with weird ideas, we're very reverent. People are going to love our banter and small talk in meetings. <laughs> and then you get here and you're like, oh, they don't. They like often would just want you to sit down and shut up and just do what you're being told to do. It's quite hierarchical here. So really that's what that quote is, is trying to address. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's true all of the time or maybe just some of the time? Because I, I do feel like there is almost like when you're that one Aussie that's honest in the room and you give it to them straight, they, I think it's kind of refreshing and, the, and they do want that. Like they, they're injecting that different culture into the room. I, look, I, I think what you're saying is is. For me, it's majority true that an Australian who comes here with the banter and the swear words, the curse words and the direct language, they will need to adapt. You know, don't move countries mm -hmm. if you're just going to be the same person. I mean, that's quite an arrogant thing to do. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, if you think about it from the audience or the recipient's point of view, the recipient of the Australian, it'll depend where you are in the US. In New York, people won't really care. If I go to the Midwest, I was down in Dallas recently, people, uh, there's a certain 
formula that happens in so many interactions. I'll speak, someone will go, and this is out in public. Oh, where's that accent from? And so I mm-hmm. say something funny back. I might say, they'll usually say, actually, which part of England are you from? And I'll say mm-hmm. Australia. <laughs> now I know as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a white Australian man, I'll use the additional adjectives, that I get to be in those situations in a way that a lot of my friends who are not white Australian men could not be in. They might not even go to some of the places that I travel to. They might not be able to walk around by themselves. And I'm not saying America's super scary in all places, okay? But I just want to acknowledge that because I'm aware of, I get to go to places in freer ways than a lot of other people. However, the thing in business is they might tolerate the Australian, but that's not the test. Because if the Australian is just there in business in the US to be entertainment or to like lift the mood or be to that, or to be that crazy heavy drinker, which is honestly how we're known, then that might not be enough for the Australian who actually wants to achieve something here. Mm-hmm. And it's once the Australian goes through being cute and they're like, hang on, I haven't done good work in a while, or maybe I'm just here for entertainment, but I want to do something meaningful. That's when a little crisis can happen. And there are at least two types of Australians that I see go through this crisis. Well, or pro- approach it. One is someone who's really here for the experience and they might work their butts off, but they're here for the experience. They probably know they're going to leave at some point. And so they're not like too caught up in it. The other person, however, is red-eyed when I catch up with them. They're like the agency or the company, they don't get me. I've been trying to present all these ideas. No one gets me. I haven't made anything in a year or two. And often they can burn out, really fizzle, and they'll make a dramatic move back to Australia or to some other part of the world. So it's it's a complicated situation, but the cute Australian we benefit from, the question for me is, okay, is, does that cuteness lead to the work that the Australian wants to do in this foreign country? Mm, the cute Australian, I, like I really feel that when, when you said that because I, I worry about falling into that trap. But I'd like to think that there's a bold and brave Australian reputation at the same time. Okay, I'm going to get into the dark stuff now. <laughs> Good luck. Just, pre- just preparing. Careful what you ask for, Joe. Careful what you ask for. You're being very professional so far, so I'm hoping I can get beneath that a little bit. So I want to talk to you about something related to strategy, and it's something that I think is really powerful that you said, and I'm, I'm easing into the darkness, and it's it's pineapples. So I really love your whole, I was going to say concept, um, that's a pun in case you you, uh, you tune in to Mark or uh, Sweatheads, uh, the, the word concept is, is a tricky one. So we do use all of these like cliches and fall back on these familiar tropes. And so tell us a little bit about why pineapple is a nice way to think about that in a fresh way. Well, that comes from some research that you can find through at least Google, if not Google Scholar, by searching for monogamous words. But what they found is that we tend to remember words that have fewer alternative meanings, which means words that don't cheat, or monogamous words, words that are mostly faithful. A word like pineapple, if somebody speaks English and they've spoken it for a while, you can say the word pineapple and they'll mostly know we're referring to fruit. A word like concept is kind of confusing. It's what I would call a cloudy word, like it's big and it's up in the sky, but what's in it? Because it has multiple meanings. So yes, pineapple. Pineapple. So the pineapple thing for me is a little bit about 
stop BSing and stop using shortcuts and take the effort to really try to get to a point that's a little, you know, potentially less vague. Yeah. Potentially a little bit more meaningful. Yeah. Because well, otherwise people have to guess at what you mean. And if you are communicating ideas, why make people guess what you mean? Help them get yeah. your idea. Otherwise, yeah. what are you doing? So do you think that that's why a lot of people, when they're presenting a strategy, they rely on facts and data because they are, in a way, monogamous? Yeah. Well, it's just they're reflecting the cultures that they're in. I would say especially the American mind is very fact and numbers driven. I, I think we use or misuse the word data, data, data. We misuse it because data is nothing until you use it at which point it's information. If you look at the data, information, knowledge, wisdom, the D-I-K-W pyramid, right? So we use the word data way too often when what people are really usually looking for in business, at least in advertising, when they say, is that a data-driven strategy or a data-driven insight, what they're really wanting is a statistic that can prove something in the future. That's really what they're saying. And that's not normally possible unless you're doing science. And the thing is with strategy and account planning, even, even like serious business strategy, it uses science, but there's still often a leap in business, an entrepreneurial leap. Maybe you can justify it. You can argue for it. You can find some evidence for it, but you can't prove the future. So that's one of the main issues that I see happening, not just in advertising agencies, but just around the act of strategy pretty much anywhere. Yeah, and our minds are not wired to live very comfortably in un the uncertainty of the future. So we like seek out that certainty as much as we possibly can. And like you said, the fact or the data, data point can help us to do that. But you talk about it as being an ingredient inside of the meal. Yeah. <laughs> You're, you cook them into opinions. So I really like that. So how much of strategy then is an opinion? Well, I think you're making an argument and you're going to use evidence. You might use science. You might use 10 academic papers and interviews with 30 people, but you're still forming an opinion and making an argument for that opinion. I don't know how much of it is opinion. I, I don't know how you would really split it up and, and put a number to it. It's a provocative question that will go without a specific answer. I think the main point is to shine a light on the fact that you're coming up with predictions and arguments for how the future can be to hopefully increase your odds at succeeding in the future. Assuming strategy is about success and not failure, maybe your strategy is to fail, in which case you would succeed at failing if you followed through, right? So it's a tough question to answer. The, the real point is, it's, you're making an argument about something that you've not yet done and you'll use science and things that seem very certain to make that argument, but you are still making an argument. Or maybe it's just a human thing that we're fueled by our experience. Like whatever we, whatever we put our own professional lens over automatically includes our own personal, you know, perspective from how we've been taught to look at problems. So it feels like it's almost unavoidable to bring, you know, yourself into your work. So is that something that you try to bring more of into what you're doing or do you try to like pull yourself back or catch yourself when that's happening? It's two cousin ideas. You need to put yourself into your work, but your work's not about you. If you're doing account mm -hmm. planning or strategy the way that I approach it, because what you're really trying to do is understand or find out about the world and represent or report 
about what you're finding, there will need to be some kind of creative leap within your recommendation. But one of the things that I talk a lot about to people who are just starting out or maybe a few years in is if you're a stand-up comic, if you're a nighttime performer, if you're a bartender, but you happen to be doing strategy now, you're not two separate people and your creativity, your strategy will be more powerful if you don't hide the other things that you are or that you've been. Mm -hmm. So I try to encourage like a coming together because it's through that coming together that you will either get in touch with an old voice or establish a new voice where that voice will hopefully be more capable of persuading people about your ideas. So I've always wanted to do this. I'm going to do this with you, Mark. I'm going to read a, an excerpt from your book. Oh gosh, this is <laughs> going to be weird. Okay, all right. <laughs> you seek meaning because meaning makes you, but you make your own meaning. And with this comes responsibility. Which meaning will you choose to make yourself with? At what point is it specific enough, big enough, enough, enough? It's very weird to have your words read back to you. And as, <laughs> as the world's opened up, like I've started to travel just a little bit, it's been strange for me to go to places where people will quote my book or podcast back to me. I'm like, whoa, I've just been me in a bedroom Stalker. for a long time, <laughs> although I also go to WeWorks. But I just want to acknowledge that mm. the themes in there are really borrowed from Viktor Frankl, who wrote a great book called Man's Search for Meaning, which is worth reading. Mm. And I'm probably also channeling a little of my hobbyist interest in someone like Carl Jung, concepts of individuation, but essentially to not be too intellectual. Meaning, which is esoteric and intellectual, is, is a useful thing to think about. But what I believe to be true, based on the people I've been around and people like Viktor Frankl that I've read, is you're going to make it up. Meaning helps you get from one day to the next. If you're in a concentration camp, like Viktor Frankl was as a psychologist, getting from one day to the next might just be about maybe one day I get to go see my cat at home or I get to go mm -hmm. see a loved one or I get to have a sunset under a tree that I loved when I was a kid. Maybe it's about turning up in the concentration camp the next day and there's some a person or two that you want to talk to. It doesn't have to be like this high and mighty purpose. It's just the thing that gets you to the next thing. What I personally feel fortunate about is what I, the work I do with Sweathead is very much about trying to help people with very active brains who don't always know how to fit into the way the world is and to help them do that. That's the energy, that's the thought that I constantly come back to because I'm also trying to fix a problem for me, which is I never felt like I've fitted in to many places as well. Many reasons for that, despite how I look and, and sound, <laughs> but, uh, that's, you know, I'm trying to solve a, a thing for myself and meaning, especially strategists, they're very existential people, which just means you're dealing with existence all the time. You're dealing with meaning all the time. And sometimes we do that for years without really thinking about what on earth we're doing here. And at some point, probably late thirties, forties, if not late twenties, early thirties, we have crises where we're like, oh gosh, how I've been living, what I've been doing, it doesn't serve me anymore. So what am I going to do about it? And often we have to reinvent our story through new and more electric sense of meaning, or we just maybe fade out of things, which is also okay if that's what you're into. If you're into a bit of fading, totally okay. <laughs> yeah. Electric sense of meaning. I love that. You're very quotable, Mark. Um, I don't know. I just say words. <laughs> I think what's really um, also powerful about, about Viktor Frankl and what he wrote, at least in the first part of the book, I was really struggling with the second part 
was he talked about the fact that it wasn't survival for survival's sake, but it's very connected, I think, into your personal motivation and your personal hopes and what gives you resilience. Um, And I think that for you, like you've created your own business, but I can imagine also like moving to the other side of the world and only interacting with awesome Aussies randomly like today. You need to have built up your resilience connected into what we were saying is like that thing that keeps you keeps keeps you going or do you feel like you're really in tune with that now yeah i'm really in tune with it but also a word like resilience and a word like grit these are recent words that became popularized through ted talks and they 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 threw me i was like what do you mean because i actually identify as being quite emotionally unbalanced and very prone to darkness and sadness and melancholy and not necessarily resilient. And it's partly because I have you know people around me who are obviously the opposite of that, of me, because we tend to be attracted to people who are the opposite. We overcompensate. And so the, there's stories I've been around where, you know, I'm fragile, I'm broken. And when I was young, I was like, I think this sadness helps me write. And that's the only way I could work it out. Now I feel a different kind of, I was going to say the word power, but a different kind of authority where I feel so urgently about a lot of the topics that I talk about. Because for people who have active, maybe bouncy brains, but very active brains who are prone to dark emotions, who are creative, who are constantly seeking out variety and novelty, that's a difficult brain to manage. And Mm -hmm. often the stories about us aren't true. You know, like the person who always comes up with ideas and people around that person are like, oh, you never do your ideas. You just come up with ideas. So what? How cool is that? That person has a hobby (laughs) and it's called coming up with ideas. Who is anybody to judge that? Or Mm. you're so emotional. You know, you do all these interviews with people, you spend time with people, and then we're trying to have a business conversation and you're just trying to reflect the emotional interview you just did with someone who was in a precarious situation that is literally connected to our product or brand. You're so emotional, right? So I I feel a certain, it's not revenge, it's definitely a sense of anger toward the way that a lot of the world is built because it's not built for people who are very introspective and intuitive and empathetic and who are creative. And so who knows how long I'll have on this planet, but I hope that that group of people, that I can make some kind of contribution to them. But I I really like what you said before about, you know, almost like reflecting on yourself and understanding how your brain naturally leans into, whether it's instinct or the catastrophic, you know, things that could be happening, like the dark sides of things. But importantly, it feels like you've reflected enough not to be tied to the trauma of your past. Would you say that's true? Yeah, a little. I use it. You know, when you talk about resilience, I've, I've been my worst enemy. You know, I'm, I'm prone to the dark thoughts. I'm, I've had phases of self-harm, uh, which are kind of literal, but also not exactly what you're thinking about. You know, I've, it's just, I don't know where it came from, but since I was a kid, there's a voice in my head, which is like, you don't deserve to be here. You know, and so that's something that I've always had to deal with. And the, the way that I've dealt with it is through music and through words, through writing words, through poetry, through the work that I do now. So, you know, you mentioned darkness. I just gave you a little a little insight mm-hmm. into it. And I'm going to see if you're going to step into it, like- <laughs> the darkness or you want to stay in the light. No, I, I want to go into the darkness because I feel like a lot of 
people, I mean, what you're, what you're talking about is very unique to you and very distinct for you and what you've gone through. But I think a lot of people would relate to it. And particularly inside of the business world, we don't talk about it enough. And I think that, you know, the, the form of expression and knowing that you can turn to things like music or writing or words and and for other people, it'll be other things to help you to, not probably it's probably not even i mean you tell me it's probably not even like reflecting on how you're feeling and making sense of it it's probably more cathartic than that it's it's just kind of connecting with it and letting it come out in whatever way it naturally comes out yeah yeah it it's putting it somewhere because you believe it's better out than in one two mm. the people that were generally around friends and family they can't handle the darkness all the time. They might be going through it themselves, but if they're not prone to darkness, like we can't put it on them all the time. That would be exhausting, right? But Mm -hmm. then the issue is that you can feel isolated or or you can feel alone and maybe you even isolate more because you're like, man, the stuff I've gone through, people really don't want to hear about it. And in fact, that bad thing that happened, they're saying it didn't happen or somehow as a kid, that was my fault. Or like, what? Stop managing my subjective reality. You don't get to mess with that anymore, which is something I only learned in my late 30s and 40s. I was listening to something about how, you know, obviously in this next few years, in this decade, they're kind of calling it the mental health epidemic. And, you know, we're, we're talking much more openly about emotional well-being and about mental health and all of these things, which I think are really wonderful aspects of it. But a part of that is that you probably will have more people self-reflecting on what makes me stressed, what makes me anxious, why am I the way that I am, why am I having these bad thoughts and feelings, or why do I struggle to deal with this thing over here? And so what I was reading about was the the fact that we, uh, it's in psychology today, because I, I read, um, you know, only the most sophisticated sources, the Psychology mm. Today magazine, about how there's a risk of going back into your childhood to try to understand why you are the way that you are today because your memory is subjective and flawed. Yeah, rewrites. So you're almost yeah, you're looking you're looking at your childlike self as an adult trying to understand what happened and then probably assigning the role of your past to your current reality where there's a disassociation there. Yeah, look we're kind of talking about subjective reality and how that can be a place probably to hide and to justify how you feel right now. But uh, look, I've, I've been to therapy a few times and about two months in, I'm always like, this is a waste of money. And there is research actually about how talk therapy is great, but not mm-hmm. effective for everybody, just as antidepressants are not effective for everybody. But typically what will happen is I'll go in and I'll just go through a whole bunch of stories. And it's, it's never to complain about my life or to blame anybody. You know, there's definitely stuff that would have been nice to not have been around but I have uh, benefited uh, from other things as, as well uh, in, in good ways, in good ways. But, mm. you know, the last time I went in, I was going through my stories and the psychologist just said, that must have been very hard for you. I'm not used to hearing something like that. And I was mm. like, oh my gosh, you would say this, you know exactly what you're doing. It's, those words are so easy to say and yet I feel heard. Oh my gosh, who am I, <laughs> right? <laughs> And, and so I think part yeah. of it, part of all of this is, is we have to reconcile our 
our past, especially if they lead to feelings all the time and you're like, where did that come from? Why am I suddenly angry? I'm not usually angry or, wow, I could cry right now. Why? Why? What's all that about? So you've got to reconcile with your past and, and see what you can do about it, I think. And for me, creativity being self-expressive, I channel all the weird things I've been around whether it's a meeting at the top of Rockefeller Center that was completely confusing to me, or growing up in a particular way with people coming in and out of our lives, moving between homes, being alone a lot on buses and you know all that sort of stuff, which was sold to me as being independent, which I totally was at a very, very like five, six, seven years old, not complaining about it. But sometimes you're like, where did that come from? Oh, it could be because of these things. Okay, cool. What are we going to do about it? How can we help other people with it? And I think that's been the big shift personally for me is now I'm more unafraid of what are we going to do about it? And because I put a lot of stuff out in public and I started very tentatively with the oversharing and then eventually at some of the events I do, people I've had people cry, I've had people say it's just you know hearing somebody else who's maybe 10 15 years ahead of me talk about some of the things that they've been around and how it's affected their mental health makes me feel not alone not broken that i can do it when you start to hear those stories you're like great i know exactly what i need to do for the rest of my life that's how i feel at the very least and i think a part of that is that we we're always in problem-solving mode. Like when we're listening to somebody else's problem, whether it's a personal, like a friend, or whether it's a, a business problem, we're always thinking about, okay, how do I, you know, how do I fix this? Like someone's telling me what's happening in their life and I'm automatically going to advice mode. Like I have the answer, but I don't, but I'm just trying to, you know, help them to find the the pathway out of that. And sometimes you just need to like stay with the problem a little bit. Yeah. Um, and you talk about this again in the book, you talk about, chaos, that there is chaos in in everything. And particularly when we're trying to dig into the human problem, not thinking about empathy from a shallow perspective, but really thinking about the chaos that resides inside of the human psyche. And how do you get like get really into that sticky, messy, dark area and like, get into that chaos can be, it feels like a really powerful thing that we don't do enough. Yeah. So when we're talking about strategy in advertising, you know, I'm, I'm looking for some kind of psychological revelation, epiphany, and it could be a small one. It doesn't have to be profound and worth writing a book about. It could just be a little one about how people use toilet paper, right? It's totally fine. But I, I think there's a shift, at least with business culture, that Edward de Bono, who passed away last year, did a really good job of, of describing. And he talks about the difference between deductive thinking and lateral thinking. Business schools teach deductive thinking which is that A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D, therefore E. Lateral mm-hmm. thinking is more chaotic. It's bouncing around, not knowing whether you have the right answer. Maybe you're not even believing in the idea of a right answer, but combining topics and things that don't usually belong together until you can create new meaning. Mm. Mythologically speaking, ideas and creativity are literally associated with chaos mm-hmm. versus order. To your point earlier about how we all need each other, businesses need chaos. They need chaotic people. They need creative people because, and and those creative people will bring chaos. The creative people need structure. They need ordered people. And it's only by those two things working together well that you're actually going to have a company that can survive. Because otherwise what will happen is that the conservative people 
the people who are all about order will nitpick their way to the most efficient company. And guess what will happen? There won't be new ideas to be efficient with because they haven't created a culture that encourages new ideas. So what do mm. they do? They have to acquire innovation or they have to acquire ideas. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that's the hardest thing for businesses, especially corporate America, to recognize. And the one difficult truth in order to recognize what I'm talking about is to look at some of the research into how companies select often low empathy people where there's an overrepresentation of psychopaths and sociopaths in leadership positions and often people on the spectrum and it's not to criticize any of that. Okay. Mm. I'll tell you what, like if we were in a tribe and we were about to go into a war and there was a really large alpha psychopath, I would love that alpha psychopath to lead us into war. You know what I mean? Well, maybe, yeah. maybe I need to rethink what I just said. <laughs> yeah, don't take advice from me. Uh, but you, you see how companies select, right? It's often mm-hmm. for low empathy individuals because they're going to make difficult decisions without caring because they're literally not wired to care. But they need caring people. They need chaotic people as well. And I think corporate America is really struggling with this because right now there are more strategy and creative roles in more kinds of companies than ever in history. But a lot of the mm. people who are actually capital C creative, if that's a thing, they feel repressed, they feel overly monitored, they feel overly processed by their own companies because their companies can't handle things being out of their control. You're very complex. Like you're, what you talk about, I think, is on a spectrum because you, I think sometimes you talk about like going right into the complexity, right into the heartland. Sometimes you talk about expression for the sake of expression and creativity for the sake of creativity. But then you sort of bridge that together with a little bit of structure and a little bit of like, don't do this over here. It's time wasting. Don't do this over here because it's energy and soul wasting. And something interesting that you talk about in the book, which is this like business mindset around chasing to collapse. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that and about, you know, how do you stop yourself from collapsing inside of your head when you're chasing and running internally inside of your mind? Oh, well, yeah, that's like a little question that went really big really quickly and it sort of exploded halfway through. (laughs) Uh, It is over time learning how you enjoy chaos with techniques that help you to order your thinking. So enjoying chaos from a very practical point of view could be, you know what, I'm going to sit down and do some stream of consciousness writing just for the sake of it or about a particular project that I'm working on. I'll give myself a page to fill in 10 minutes, five pages in 20 minutes, whatever it is, or I'll do a drawing, right? That's chaos. And then the ordered part of the brain comes in and says, okay, well, what's the main point here? What am I actually saying? How could I say it in a sentence, in a word? And so there's constantly this back and forth between the explosion the chaos, and then structure. And the more you do it, the more that you know that it's a game that you're playing, the more that you'll be able to use certain creative constraints, which could involve time. You know, I've got 10 minutes to come up with two ideas, but here's what I mean by the word idea uh, and, and so on and so forth. When you're young, you don't know if you've got anything. You're like, I don't know, do I have an idea yet? Should I just keep going? Or you overuse frameworks and structures to make yourself look smart and, and important. And and business words, like yeah. concept, idea. Which is okay. We all, go, we all go through that. Yeah. I don't mean to, I'm not mocking it. It's just to realize that that's not really the journey. It's like the first stop out of a mm. round the world trip that you get to take. 
Or, you know, I think your point as well is about being a little bit more considered and really thinking through what words you're using for the impact that they should have. Well, I was going to say, yeah, but also enjoying the randomness. It's two things. So like Hmm. You could, you could take, I could take this pen. So I'm holding up a pen. I've used about half of it. Now, what if we had to write an essay about how you and I are both like this pen, this specific pen? Mm-hmm. We could do that. We could find enough threads in there, but it's just because I picked it up, it was on the desk and I'm being random, but I'm going to get to some kind of structure through which to create meaning and maybe even help us understand ourselves differently. All you're doing through that chaos is peppering yourself in the writing sense with questions to answer. And that's a real skill for people to, we were talking about this just before that um, inside of the business world, I think we're, we're losing that ability to write. I love that you, you have this book strategy is your words and you use words so eloquently in the book as you have in this podcast interview, Mark. Beautiful work. So thank you so much for bringing together the darkness and the light, the chaos and the order the intellectualism and the reality. I have one last question for you, which is what your go-to is when you're trying to push yourself to look outside. I would say it's a long walk around Central Park and then stand-up comedy. Mm. And do you listen to music while you're walking? It depends. Back to your love of music? It, it depends, yeah. Uh, probably podcasts more than music these days. I do listen to mm. quite a bit of music, but I, 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 you know, maybe a bit more verbally focused right now. And whenever I do it, I'm like, I should just be doing this in silence. It just depends on what I'm working on, right? But I know Mm. most walks that I do will lead to a social post. It could lead to a new strategy for a client. It could lead to a new product idea for the company, like for my company. So trusting that the walk is part of the work, I think is Mm. really, really useful. There's so much science Mm. about it. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's actually a common go-to for a lot of the people that I've asked that question to on the show. But the stand-up comedy one is different. Is that to balance the darkness with a bit of bit of humor and a bit of lightness? Well, stand-up comedy comedy is the darkness. Ah. <laughs> so that's that's where I get to brain relate to people who are unafraid of the darkness, of mm. discussing their lives, of being provocative. And, uh, you know, we've just finished like a six-week strategy training session. And what I've started to say to people is stop trying to sound like a strategist. And if anything, at least when you're working with me, try to sound a bit more like a stand-up comic. Mm. Stand-up comic might have five minutes on stage. Their economy of language has to be precise. They have to provoke us. They have to get into our heads. They, they get us seeing the world in different ways. And they get a reaction out of us. Those dynamics are what quote-unquote good strategy can do. For those of us who practice strategy, Mark is one to follow. Hopefully in this chat, he gave you structure for strategic planning while encouraging you to enjoy the randomness, dismantling the idea of strategy, but embracing your source for its impact perhaps, especially if it comes from darkness. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow the show and give it a rating. Until next time, this is Joe. Keep looking outside. Hold up. 